University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. There's an intense debate that has spanned the nearly 13 years of my marriage. Jif versus Peter Pan peanut butter. Now, I know this seems so silly, but this is legitimate stuff in our family. If you, can, of course, can tell from the image size which one I'm in favor of. Now, while we can't agree on which brand is better, we can agree on how to store it. Did you know that the proper way to store your peanut butter jar is actually upside down? This keeps the oil balanced within the container, which makes you think if this is the appropriate way to store it, then why do the distributors continue to print an inverted label on the jar? We've been in our series of the last several months, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, seeing that through story, Jesus turns a backward world in the right direction. And for this, we take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 12. Our text this morning centers on a party. In fact, Jesus has told quite a few parables with parties at the center, and his first uh, miracle was actually turning water into wine at a party. So what does that tell us about Jesus' view of us having a good time? Today, we're wrapping up this kingdom series in which we look at how Jesus is taking these parables and turning us in the right direction. And we've seen that, that the way that we see the world is not always as God intends us to see it and how God might continually change our way of thinking and living. So as we look at Luke chapter 14, the context of this parable is, is very important. Jesus has, in fact, been at a house party with a group of religious leaders, the Pharisees. The party is interrupted by a person who's suffering from what the Bible calls dropsy. We now might call it edema or fluid building up in the muscles tissues. So the problem for the Pharisees was that Jesus um, had the audacity to heal this man on the Sabbath day, which the law permitted was not supposed to be a day of work, but a day of rest. And capitalizing on this moment, Jesus points out that they're willing to help their animals in crisis on the Sabbath then why wouldn't they help a child of God who's in need? And he then notes that while their religious laws call them to care for those in need, they are only interested in surrounding themselves with people who will elevate their social and economic standings. That they're all too willing to act outwardly religiously humble, but inwardly care nothing but for themselves. It's a tense conversation, right? So it says this in verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of righteousness. In the first century, a party underscored the very nature of the social pecking order. A host would invite to his party 
in order to also receive later invitations to future parties for his guests. So why would you invite someone who is not going to invite you to a party later on? And not only this, but you would only throw a party that would heighten your place among society. So parties were uh, in order to elevate your social, your political, and your religious status. It was a game of the pecking order of the first century. Therefore, you would have the benefit of inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Why would you invite the social outcasts, the marginalized persons at their party? What good would that do for me? The first century Jewish society marginalized and excluded those that they deemed religiously and economically and socially unfit. Children and women, widows, sick people, the poor, the uneducated, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the non-Jewish people were put into a category of unwelcome or sinful. And not only were these people looked down upon with disgust and contempt, but they were withheld from, from status and rights representation and consideration within society. When I was at, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was in middle school, I wasn't exactly in the popular group of kids. Uh, this husky kid that didn't wear any of the brand name stuff, I was often not invited to things. But my best friend Ryan, however, was part of the in crowd, and he was friends with just about everybody. So when my birthday came around, he told me that I should have a party and he'll invite some of the popular kids to come. So my parents bought a whole bunch of food. Uh, they got it all ready. The time for the party came. Ryan showed up with excitement of the number of kids he invited to celebrate his best friend's birthday. Except no one else came. <laughs> it was a party for the two of us. But as a husky middle school boy, my first thought was excitement that I get to eat all those hamburgers for 50 by myself. <laughs> Religion can often become captive to the greater culture around it. Religion can become an exclusionary society unto itself. Religious rightness leads to the rejection of people, whether it be for their political persuasion, their religious affiliation, their sexual identity, their gender, their ethnicity, their race, their age, their economic status, or so on. The human race has been in the business of excluding since our tribal ancestors pushed some out while keeping others in. That's literally where we get this term tribalism from. Our ancient ancestors ostracized those from the, the crowd that didn't fit to meet their systems of life. And it meant literally life or death, hunger or starvation, human connection or isolation. And religion has become the master craftsman of exclusion. Since we have our laws and our holy book, we know how to interpret it and to dictate what kind of person belongs in God's family, the church. This is what God wants for us, right? This is why we've been given all these laws in the Old Testament and a laundry list of no-no sins in the New Testament, right? Sinners or saints, heaven or hell, the point is inclusion for the righteous and exclusion for the unholy, right? As one author put it, out of the most unrecognized way that religious people exclude the unwanted, that we must have poor people that we've tucked away, deployed and locked up, that we can have them live under our freeway overpasses that we in our comfortable cars and busy schedules can drive over or fly across. They can eat the food that's long past our expiration dates that we don't want, 
wear the worn-out clothes that we put on in our front porches, that we can have our household declutter and broken appliances that we can give away so that we get a tax deduction and a clear conscience. As long as we can't see them, we're happy, and we think we should be too. You see, Jesus said to his audience, it's easy to invite friend or family members to a meal, but an outcast, a marginalized person, a person of a different persuasion than you, well, that's, that's a completely different matter altogether. And Jesus' indictment on the religious leaders and his society's perspectives of the unwanted demands that we ask this question, who are we not inviting to the party? Where are the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind that Jesus said that we should invite to the party? Where are the modern-day tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, and demonized among us? Are we inviting the marginalized? Take a look at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests, and at the time of the banquet he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready. I love this moment. Jesus has thrown the hammer down on breaking the very foundation of society's pecking order. He has shifted their understanding of what it means to be part of the family of God, those who were all included in God's kingdom. And someone in the crowd loves what Jesus has said so much that he basically throws out an amen statement, a verbal high five. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. In other words, how fortunate are the ones who get to eat dinner in God's kingdom. This guy's like, right on, Jesus. I can hang in there with that kind of teaching. And so in response, Jesus tells a parable. This parable centers on an epic banquet. A man who has decided to throw a banquet, he sends out his servants to invite the guest, and we all know, because we've sent out invitations before, and the next step is all sorts of preparation, food to harvest, animals to be slaughtered, tables and chairs and decorations to set. And preparing for this host would have been exhausting because parties in Jesus' day didn't just last a few hours, they lasted several days. In the first century, after all, preparation would have been made, the servants would have sent out a second time to announce that the party time and to gather the guests to come, so the host sends out his servants. But it says this in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. So as the time came for the party, to begin, and for the guests to be chauffeured in, there was a slight problem. All the guests had excuses of why they didn't want to come. The excuses were actually kind of lame when you think about it. I've got to go look at a field I just bought. I've got to go try out a new oxen. I just got married. Okay, that last one was probably a legitimate excuse. In Jesus' day, this would have been a tremendous breach in etiquette. They would have shamed this man. So let's see what happens next in verse 21. 
Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered a servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servants, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. I love how the host isn't going to go to have a party without having anybody there. I've made all these preparations. This party is going to be awesome. Let's bring in the humble folks. I love how Eugene Peterson translates it this way. Quickly, get out into the city streets and alleys. Collect all who look like they need a square meal. All the misfits and homeless and wretched you can lay your hands on and bring them in here. If those invited aren't coming, this party ain't going to be ruined. Some biblical scholars have interpreted this, this parable as an allegory of the Hebrew people's rejection of salvation through Jesus and God's opening of salvation to all, especially the Gentiles. But the conclusion of this parable draws us to our first takeaway. God's party isn't what we expected. To Jesus' audience, the original invite list would have made sense. You invite people who look like you, have the same economic status as you, the people moving up in the world, the pre people that will bring you better standing in your town. But Jesus shocked his audience by showing that God's kingdom is open for the lowlifes, the screw-ups, the unworthy, the poor, the broken, the smelly, the filthy, the marginalized. God's party isn't what they expected. And Jesus proceeds to tell three more parables in the chapter after this one about a lost sheep, coin, and two sons. And the message conveyed that God cares about things that are broken, misguided, and adrift. In fact, each time the parables end with a party being thrown for the lost things being found and restored. God's party isn't what we expected if it's full of smelly and dysfunctional rejects. Do you remember that really sad story I, I told you earlier about having a party for 50 and only one showed up? So after Ryan and I sat there and were eating hamburgers for 50, I finally got up the courage to ask him who he invited. And he began to tick off all the names of the people he invited. It was a pretty good list. And do you know what the number one question they asked me, he said? Who's going to be there? And while I couldn't tell them who all was going to be there, he said. I assured them that they would be there, so they should come. Isn't that the question that most people ask or at least think to themselves when being invited to a party? Who's going to be there? So Jesus' parable begs the same question, but in a different form. If this is God's guest list, are you going? Oh boy, that's a really touchy question. Because out loud, we all agree that the church should have its doors open for all people. But in reality, it gets really messy and uncomfortable when those people actually start to come in. What happens when the people that don't dress like us come into the door? Or when the people who have a different life partner than what we're used to? Or when their skin color is different than ours? Or when their theology is different than ours? Or when their kids are restless and talkative in worship? Or they're passionate about things that don't match our passions? Or their desire to worship is 
different than the way that we desire to worship. But we have to push that question beyond the confines of the institutional church, since we know that the church is not a structure, but the living community in God's world. Our, our community is full of people who are mismatched with us in so many ways, whether it be because of their philosophy, their political views, their theological convictions, their ethnicity, their race, their sexuality or gender, their life experiences, their vices, their abilities and disabilities, their economic status, their working status, their mental health, and so much more. Can we come to terms with the fact that this is who Jesus indicates is invited to God's party? And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we RSVPing? And typically, if we're not on board with God's party in this form, then what we do is we go find another church with people who are like us, who live in sheltered communities from those that are different from us. We watch the news that simply regurgitates what we want our worldview to be, or we shut our eyes from the reality of the gritty and challenging nature of the world in which we live. And if this is the conclusion that we come to, that's okay. It's just that we've got to stop calling ourselves the church and start calling ourselves something else altogether. Because Jesus' church is called to be inclusive for all people. Pew Research recently conducted a study uh, on the causation behind the mainline denominational church decline in the United States. More specifically, the 65 million adults that have left the church in the last decade and the 2.7 million that continue to leave each year. Do you want to know the number one reason that people indicated they were leaving the church? It's not because they have lost their faith, or the influence of the culture, or because the church is not preaching the gospel hard enough, the number one reason reported for leaving the church was the disconnect between Jesus and the gospels and American Christianity. Surveyors reported that the American church is full of words they described like this, hate, shame, dominance, exclusion, tribalism. As one survey put it, why would anyone want to join a religion full of people like this, let alone an eternity filled with people like this? And I share these research findings to illustrate that as much as things change, they really do stay the same. And we will rob ourselves of the profound opportunity if we only receive Jesus' parable and my commentary on it through the lens of judgment or pessimism. Because this parable is an invitation to change our way of thinking and living, to expand our understanding of the inclusive nature of God and to live individually and collectively as a church that lives in hospitality. Hospitality must be the way that we live and breathe and speak and deduce what we should do and should not do to others. Hospitality is about serving even when it's nasty and uncomfortable. Hospitality is about serving even when the ones that we are serving maybe not recognize it. It's about serving even if others do not recognize what we have done. Hospitality is about serving even if it's unpopular or even if it will get us uh, criticism from others in response. Hospitality is not about doing what is quick and easy, but about doing what is right 
and sustainable for the sake of those who need to experience the love of God. Therefore, the church must attack with the way of Jesus the institutions and laws and methods and culture that suppresses and marginalize others. Hospitality is about building people up with love, a love that we live each day of our life with the people that we see are constantly torn down by their peers and systems and set to the side. Therefore, we must be countercultural. We must build people up with a love that comes from God. Serve without worrying what others might say or think. Serve for the sake of the person you are serving, not for yourself or for others. Serve unapologetically. Serve to build others up in God's love, not tear them down with, with religious and self-righteous hate. Blessed is the one who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God. In response to Jesus' call, we must identify the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Who are they? How can we connect with them? How can we serve them? And how can we invite them to the party? Jesus said, so when you throw a party, UBC, we are throwing a party every single week, whether we realize it or not. Each time we gather on Sundays, each time we offer church-wide gathering, each time we hold things like English conversations, each time we open the doors of the MDO, each time that we host a connect group, we are hosting a kingdom party. And as we continue through this pandemic, there are a lot of people that are hurting and suffering, and we are inviting them to the party, whether that be the party of simply giving a word of encouragement or bringing them a meal. And when this pandemic is over, there is going to be so much of a mess to clean up and so many people looking for answers to their aching questions. Will we invite others with openness and compassion to the party? And beyond the confines of your life within this faith community, every day that you go to work and school, the gym, the grocery store, a restaurant, the ball game to the park, you are bringing the party of Jesus with you. So who are you inviting to the party? A few years back when I was pastoring at Mosaic Church in Clayton, we ventured to Atlanta for a four-day mission immersion. And our hope was to learn more about what others were doing to grow the kingdom of God and to serve alongside them. And probably the most impactful experience for the group was the time we went to the Gateway Center. It's a homeless shelter in the heart of Atlanta's 10,000 homeless population. And we were tasked with washing hands and feet and giving manicures and pedicures. And about 30 minutes into the session, a man came walking in wearing a wig and an Atlanta Falcons jersey. And he wanted uh, to clean his feet and to cut his nails first uh, before uh, he had his feet painted. And uh, when he uh, sat down and lifted up his legs to begin to trim his own toenails, um, we quickly learned that he was just wearing an Atlanta Falcons jersey because sitting right in front of this man was uh, our family that had two young children, a nine-year-old, and all of a sudden this man's private parts are for where all everyone can see. But the family didn't miss a beat. They painted his nails as if his male genitalia was not right there the whole time. 
And maybe the words of the Gateway Center's volunteer coordinator put it best when she said this. I watched a church on a mission trip lovingly paint the fingernails of a crack addict trans prostitute. They never judged her. They treated her as if she was Jesus. I did notice that her private parts were exposed, so I found a longer pair of shorts for her to put on. Sometimes you got to clothe the naked and paint their fingernails. You probably won't hear this in another sermon across the United States today, but if a nine-year-old boy can paint the nails of a transgender prostitute that is a crack addict without judging her, then maybe it's time that we begin to let the theological impact of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like to give shape to the way that we see and treat others. As it was declared at the beginning of this text, blessed is the one who eats at the feast of the kingdom of God. Now, may we go out inviting all without judgment into the inclusive and grace-filled manner of God's bid shindig.